Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Digital Wave, episode number one of a brand new podcast in Sri Lanka, specifically talking about tech, technology trends, and technology policy, as well as a little bit of technology law, and basically to decode technology for you, the average guy, the layman, who sometimes gets mystified by technology. So I'm here to decode that and to tell it to you in a way that it's understanding, maybe educational, perhaps, uh, you know, insightful as well. And on that, welcome to the digital wave. My name is Asela Vaidilankara. Today is the 15th of May, 2020. And I'm so glad that you've given me the opportunity to share a few minutes with you and give you a quick introduction about digital wave. Why digital wave, you may ask? Well, we're an island. Waves are what we have. And also, uh, the inspiration came to me when obviously you're surfing the web or the term surfing the web or being on the web, web surfing. That originated obviously with surfing, but uh, came into the web, web jargon as well. And that's what you are doing right now. You are surfing the podcast and finally landed here. And also, interestingly, Digital Wave was part of the discussion that happened post-COVID-19, where people were suddenly, they had to pivot to digital. Suddenly, they had to digitally transform and become digital, even if their DNA wasn't digital, especially for companies. So that also has a theme on Digital Wave. I'm going to try to be honest with you. I'm going to try to be clear and concise with you when it comes to what we're discussing, the facts we're discussing. And if I don't know something, I'm going to tell you I don't know. Probably I'll do some research and get back to you. Uh, and that's what it is. And I would love to hear your feedback on the episodes. What can we do next? Ideas for guests, uh, content, and so on so that it's an interactive dialogue and it keeps you entertained and informed as well. So with that being said, once again, thank you for being here and let's go right ahead to the subject we're discussing today. So let's jump right in to the topic that we were going to talk about. And I think it was an interesting topic because a lot of people, tech as well as non-tech people, are showing interest in this particular topic, which is the ENIC in Sri Lanka. Uh, and I want to touch on a little bit about its evolution, uh, where we are today, and where I suppose the government wants to take it, and s what are some of the risks uh, in terms of systems like this. Uh, anywhere else in the world where they do do something similar and some of the problems that they face. So uh, why the sudden interest in the ENIC? Uh, well, on Wednesday, 13th May, uh, the president's media office issued a communique uh, that President Gotabe Rajapaksha, who is a technocrat at heart, instructed officials to start work on a digital database of citizens which will have their bio data, which will link to all activities connected to a person including income tax and voting. So in two important uh, functional areas, there are income tax and voting. We would, I would like to see 
personally how they are going to link the systems because when in terms of income taxing i know that the income tax department already has a system that it uses so it's interesting to see how it will link into each other so i'll i'll come back to that and voting now that's a big one because theoretically voting in sri lanka is always driven manually it's mandated by law that it has to be driven manually so this is the first time that we're actually talking about digitizing something like that i'll go on to the communique <clears throat> individual biodata could be viewed physically as well as through the internet the new identity card which contains the most accurate data comprises information required by departments and agencies that are governed under different laws so this actually tackles the ch- main challenge of the enic project per se because um, interestingly uh, the enic project or the enic program was the brainchild of president gota beraja paksha when he was the defense secretary i believe in 2012 if i'm not mistaken yeah so the main challenge is the agency that issues the nic which is uh, have it right here the agency is the the agency that issues the nic is the register of births and deaths under the births and deaths registration act which is a one entity now but the problem is that entity is entrusted to issue just an nic and that's where it job starts and ends so the interoperatorship between the nic you know there are certain institutions that require you to have an nic they don't really link into those uh, driving license passport so on so they don't really link up together so this is always been the challenge so if you're actually building a system it's always everybody focuses on their uh, well little castle so the department of registrations would say yeah nic registration and maintaining the registries are thing but you want us to talk to the the motor traffic de- department for example well that's not really our thing or if you oh you want you, you you want to use the nic for tax purposes well get in touch with the inland revenue because that's really not uh, within our purview so this has always been the challenge when you're talking about uh, enic so it's interesting to see that they're actually touching on that particular aspect so anyway we'll see um so the communicate goes on includes information that to be furnished not only to carry out obtaining passports driving license so again we're touching on that interoperability aspect ah so this is interesting for, but also for the purposes of pension samurdhi income tax and casting vote again casting vote uh, let's let's have a chat on that maybe later but samurdhi samurdhi allowance as you know is the allowance that was given out to low income families and daily wage workers especially in this unfortunate covid-19 situation we saw that most of those people were out of work and the government indeed started a program to uh, compensate those people uh, with 5000 rupees uh, part of the problem was of course traceability uh, and i think this is this is what acted as a catalyst to speed up this program as well because i'm told that this interlinking of various government departments was not seen and it's not something that's uh, that's evident in this context so maybe that's that's what really made it move on so then 
forgive the background noise there. Okay. Uh, the new identity card will be prepared by a committee of experts under the direction of ICTA. ICTA, as you know, is the uh, point man or the, the watchdog agency. I wouldn't call it a watchdog. Can I call it a watchdog? No, you can't call it a watchdog. It is the agency charged with all the digitization and the digital initiatives of the government of Sri Lanka. So it has a huge mandate. Perhaps we can dedicate an episode to talk about ICTA. But interestingly, ICTA has been put at the helm of, you know, supervising this project. So that's, that's good because ICTA is currently made out of uh, all the technocrats and uh, people with solid tech backgrounds. So, you know, the conversation will not be driven uh, by any other, other interests. It will just be driven by tech. So that's, that's encouraging to see. But anyway, let's go on. Um, Okay, yeah. So that's that's pretty much the gist of the communique. Um, I'm just going to quote uh, the GSMA Digital Identity Country Report, uh, which was taken back in 2018. Uh, GSMA, as you know, is an organization uh, that's a collection of all GSM operators globally. So they're the uh, they're sort of an organization that looks as various. Uh, telco operators' interests globally, and they comprise different reports of how telcos can, uh, you know, expand their business lines and country situations and so on and so forth. So I encourage you, if you have time, to check some of GSMA's reports. They're very interesting. Okay, so, and I quote, uh, this report says that Sri Lanka, to its credit, has a foundational and functional identity system that is well-developed and robust. So, Basically, you have to hand it to the bureaucracy. Right now, the uh, the per- uh, registrations of persons department has a well-documented, uh, reasonably well-managed manual process to do it. That's that's actually before the ENIC came along. Um, and what what is important is in Sri Lanka, the NIC is responsible for so many other identity link services that are accessible to the population, as, as I explained. Uh, when you're picking up your passport, when you're picking up your driving license, your tax, um, any other form of registrations that's required for government, bank accounts, uh, when you're buying a SIM, there are certain services that uh, literally mandate that you have an NIC. And uh, even now, we saw in this COVID-19 lockdown situation, the NIC was used as a device to identify people on which day they can go out. So it, it serves as a, like a Swiss Army knife of sorts to give various, uh, various uses to various entities, government or non-governmental, uh, in order to a, you know, link it back to your identity as well as verify your age, uh, I know there are certain sites uh, that actually want you to punch in your NIC number so that it actually verifies your age. So interesting things that can be done around the NIC right now. Uh, that's where it is. And what happened was actually back, I think the, the ENIC digitization process started somewhere in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, 2014, 2015. And then uh, the first ENIC was issued in, there you go, 27th October 2017. 
which actually featured a machine readable barcode and it stored biometric data. So right now, uh, if you are taking an NIC brand new or if you're 15 or 16 right now, teenager, and you're taking your NIC, the, the process would entail you giving your biometrics and uh, basically they capture your biometrics at that point. So what I'm told is that's where it ends. So right now you have uh, a machine read readable uh, ENIC that stores your biometrics, that stores, well, I think it's thumbprints and iris scan, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so those are the two biometrics that they do indeed store. Interestingly, uh, which I see as a duplication of effort, uh, the passport also stores your uh, NIC, uh, rather stores your biometrics. So maybe that's a discussion we can take at a later day on why there's sometimes replication of biometrics uh, in certain areas, especially when it comes to your passport as well as your NIC. But again, there are some legal snags also there, I believe. So we can we can take it at a later day. Um, so there there is the gist of the problem. So you have a project or a process right now that issues ENICs and right now part of the population does indeed have an ENIC but then what can you do with it? Who does this ENIC talk to? For example, uh, can it be used like an other where, you know, in India, the other Basically, that, that's not from a centralized uh, database when it comes to an NIC of sorts. But basically, it stores your biometrics and allows people to open bank accounts. Right now, we can't do that. The KYC or Know Your Customer, which is the process that banks use to verify your identity before you, you begin an account, that is, not, that is linked to an NIC, but that's not linked to biometrics. So you can't... Uh, walk into a bank and just give your thumbprint and start an account. But ideally, it should be the case because if, you're, if you've already provided your biometrics to the government in form of your and digital identity, ideally, your biometric verification should be able to give you all the services. Um, another example, your Samurdi, which is, I think, what the government is, is thinking on. Uh, you should be able to verify who you are based on your thumbprint, which is linked to an ENIC, and identify that there is already a tag on you that you are a Samurdi uh, holder and therefore you know, eligible for Samurdi benefits or can use a Samurdi bank. So some of the, those are some of the aspects that you can really look at when you talk about an ENIC, how it can be used between uh, departments. But again, one of the challenges that all these departments are run by different legis uh, legislations. For example, the person's registration is, is governed by, like I said, the, the Births and Deaths Registration Act. The issuance of the passport is a different set of uh, laws. Uh, issuance of driving license, again, a different act governs that. So what happens is, when it comes to government bureaucracy, they're very particular about the legality of it. So if there is a talk about a digital identity, I suppose there should be uh, a talk about how do we amend the existing laws so that 
each different departments can actually share the information with the user's con consent. So obviously, if Inland Revenue Department is going to uh, use my biometrics to create a tax file, obviously I, ne I need to be informed or I need to go there and provide my biometrics so, and that access request so that that can be carried out. So the privacy part of it, we will come to that, but that should be handled. But again, how does one go about that process? Who is the custodian agency that holds on to all those information? And who is the agency that is responsible to ensure the security of those records as well? So is it CERT? Is it ICTA? Is it none of these agencies? Is it a brand new agency that you're going to set up with a brand new set of laws? So that's maybe a discussion that we'll have to look at as well. Um, so, yes, so the progress has been limited so far, which is, again, why I think the president decided to, you know, pull everybody up and uh, tell them that we are going to restart this project and this project is being fast-tracked. And that's, that's where it is. So that's the dream. That's the dream is that you can do everything, uh, maybe at, even at the comfort of your home. You can maybe just give your eye scan and you can authenticate government services. Uh, you can pay your varipana, uh, you know, using your digital ID. Uh, you can pay your taxes. Uh, your tax file is already created, so there's nothing complicated there. You can uh, pay your fines because your driving license is linked to your NIC and therefore uh, you can just authorize your bank to pay uh, the postal department fines and then that automatically gets updated to um, to postal department pays the fine and that automatically gets updated to your driving license so there's so many different areas of how you can play about uh, you know this and how much of efficiency you can give to people when it comes to government services but again that's not the the point is not that a the point is you really have to decide who is holding on to that data, who is looking after that data, and who is um, going to decide how that data is going to be dispersed, which comes to a second point of how these different agencies will communicate with each other. Is it going to be uh, using one platform? Is it going to be different modules? So again, this is all very interesting discussions. I know there are some uh, literature about this floating about, but uh, certainly these are some of the aspects that we need to look at when you are talk talking about a holistic digital identity. Uh, and also, what's more important, are you going to link it to our healthcare services? Because uh, right now, there's something called a personal healthcare number, PHN, that government hospitals use. So you can just give your NIC, I think you're given your biometrics as well. And that suddenly, uh, basically, your, your health profile is created. And that is shared among all the government hospitals. So if you visit one government hospital and later you visit another government hospital, your health records are there. So is that going to be linked to your digital identity? So these are some of the discussions and some of the policy aspects that, that, uh, that needs to be looked at. And I'm glad uh, the president has assembled such a team to look at this. 
And uh, yes, now comes to some of the challenges of this. As you know, when there's a database of truckload of information about people, it's going to be a target for cyber criminals because any collection of information, any data set that's rich enough is worth some amount of money if you sell that information on the dark web. And uh, the dark web is, I'll, I'll do an episode uh, on the dark web, but for the moment, it's not the regular web. It's, uh, it's what we call unindexless sites. So I'll, I'll get to that. I'll, I don't want to get too technical with you guys, because like I said, I want this podcast to be about layman's coming here to understand what's going on and maybe decoding some of the tech that we are talking about. So I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible. So the idea is if you have a set of records and, you, and it's worth something, people will try to steal said records. We've seen it happen many times. And I'm just going to give you a couple of examples that happened not too long ago. This is this year and last year. So just to give you a context, uh, the government of uh, Quebec, Canada, in February 2020, uh, the government of Quebec admitted the data breach of potentially impacting around 360,000 teachers uh, in, in employed in one Canadian province. Gentral, New Zealand, that is again February 2020, a saving scheme provided uh, by the New Zealand government reported a security incident, 26,000 records stolen. Aurora Water in the US, January 2020, customers of Colorado Water Supplier um, was, was uh, attacked and uh, stolen. Jail Corp, again in the US, in, again January 2020. Researchers discovered Jail Corp, a provider of prison services in the US, was leaking data uh, related to about 20,000 prison inmates. The Brazilian government in October 2019, uh, 92 million citizens' details were sold on the dark web. Serbank Russia, Russian police, uh, that's again October 2019, Russian police opened a case against an unnamed former employee of a state-owned bank who allegedly confessed to selling credit card details of 5,000 customers. Um, there's only three more. Supreme UK, a private biometric company uh, which supplies organi organizations including London's Metropolitan Police, exposed a database that included more than 1 million fingerprints, usernames, password, facial recognition data. There you go. Uh, NRA Bulgaria, Bulgaria's tax authority, was hacked in 2019, July of 2019, uh, an incident affecting more than 5 million people. Uh, the country's finance minister admitted that 3% of the agency's database had been hacked. And finally, City Power, South Africa, again February 2019, ransomware hit Johannesburg's electrical supply. With the state-owned power losing access to customer-facing systems, the in incident affected more than 250,000 people. So, a long story short, uh, just a few examples. I just wanted to keep the timeline rather limited because... Uh, um, you know, there's been so many breaches uh, when it comes to government agencies. Plus, there is always a challenge when it comes to government agencies because sometimes governments don't disclose breaches. Now, if you're in the EU, uh, GDPR, as per GDPR, which is the a law that governs the entire European Union region, you have to disclose a breach. 
but certain governments, certain agencies sometimes decide to disclose the breach, sometimes decide not to disclose the breach. Um, so we can look at disclosing breaches also when it comes to Sri Lankan context, because I know many Sri Lankan companies also are very reluctant to disclose a breach because they feel it's uh, going to affect them or their brand equity or, or their public perception in a negative way. But we can get to that. So that's, that's a long list of very recent one, but one of the two biggest hacks or two biggest data breaches that I want to talk about is one for the Singapore health authorities called SingHealth, which basically all the health details of all the Singaporeans are stored in this particular database and it was hacked, including, this was in 2018, I think, yes, including the details of Singapore's prime minister. So very sensitive, you have a situation where your personal health records are exposed and we don't know what harm can come to you. That's one. Number two, the other one is very close to home across the Pork Strait, India. The other system was hacked and some of the details of uh, some of the data of the other was available online and was exposed. So again, you have instances of agencies or centralized government databases being breached, being hacked, and also, you know, government databases being exposed. So the trend is very simple. There is people who are out there to expose these details and you cannot at any point go around saying, no, you know, no one will target us. No, there's, there's enough and more examples of enough and more countries suffering data breaches in a government level. So what I want to do, and one of the risks that we do run when we're doing this is, uh, you know, making sure the systems are reasonably secure. I mean, granted, any malicious entity that puts enough resources and effort into uh, trying to overcome a system will be successful. I know controversial statement, but, you know, that's, that's the crux of it. You can't say that my system will not be hacked. It's, it's a very fallacious belief. You can't say that. The fallacy of that belief is if somebody spends enough time and effort studying your system, studying uh, your systems, and studying the security of your systems, your networks, and so on and so forth, they will find a vulnerability that they will exploit. It's similar to a burglar. You can't say that my house cannot be burgled. There is re you have taken reasonable precautions to make sure your house will not be burgled. Maybe you have a CCTV system. Maybe you have a watchdog outside. Maybe you actually have a physical security person outside. Maybe you've taken some other precautions. Uh, but for no amount of certainty, you can say that my house will not be burgled into. It's the same thing when it comes to any system. There is a certain degree of risk that you run. And there is a certain degree of, of risk that you have to take, which is acceptable. That does not mean that you stop digitization or digital transformation in any way or form. But that does mean that you take reasonable precautions. Because if you look at most of these data breaches, it was done uh, by exploiting very simple weaknesses, which should have been business as usual, which should have been done anyway, or should have been there. Or, you know, 
if somebody took a little more effort to look at these things, it could have been avoided. So this is my fear. Primarily that we do do this and we do create a database and you know, within a year it gets hacked or the data gets exposed online. So that is one of the repercussions that I'm worried about. Also, again, the legal part of it. Who owns that information? Who takes care of that information? Who's managing that database? How will, it, how will each agency share? More of a secondary concern, but primarily, how secure is this information? And how serious are you taking that? Where will it be housed physically? Will it be in a server in Sri Lanka? Obviously, it will be, but where? So, so these are some of the questions, I suppose, that will be debated in this policy forum or this task force that has been established. But again, one thing I didn't see was an emphasis on security, an emphasis on how we are going to make this cyber secure, how we are going to ensure that these systems are well hardened in a way that would make it difficult for it to be breached. So that's some of the concerns. But like I said, the, you know, this is the right way to go. We need a digital ID. We need ENIC, which makes government fundamentally better and efficient at dealing with people's problems and basically cuts the foot traffic in most government agencies as well. So you don't have a situation where you'll have to wait, stand in line in your divisional secretary, secretary's office or your... England Revenue Office or your Department of Motor Vehicles Office or so on and so forth. So many different agencies where you don't need to stand in line or you don't need to waste a lot of time in those agencies because the services will become seamless. That's good. That is accepted. And right now, what if COVID-19 has taught us something, theme of the program, theme of the podcast, the digital wave has hit. So right now, what you have to figure out is, what are you going to do about it? And I think, I'm glad that the government is being proactive about the digital wave. It's already here. Some companies are <laughs> completely underwater, and we'll talk about that. But certainly a proactive measure on how we can take it forward. But I would like to see a little more emphasis on security. Maybe look at some security standards. Uh, I know ISO has several security standards. There are data protection standards uh, recognized globally. So we can say, okay, this database is in line with ABC standards, and those are world, world recognized standards. So that gives you a little more comfort. But that's perhaps an area that uh, the government or the agencies in charge of this project can, can look at. Uh, I will give you an update of how this program or how this project is progressing. But there it is. Hopefully, the NIC that we all trust and love will be digitized in the near future. We may be looking at government services being linked. We may be looking at doing some of the government services at home on a digital uh, format. And basically, maybe your phone, through your phone, uh, validating biometric data and authorizing certain services or you know, carrying out payments or carrying out government-related uh, uh, services through your phone, uh, not physically required to go to an office. So that's the dream. I think most of you will be glad in Sri Lanka to have that dream. So, and that's it, ladies and gentlemen. 
thank you very much for paying attention. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions, feel, please feel free to drop me an email. I will link my details. Plus, uh, I'm on Twitter, Asela, Asela, at Asela W. That's my Twitter handle. You can at me anytime. I'll be glad to discuss anything related to this podcast, uh, clarify anything. Uh, on, on this particular to topic, I've already written a, a very small article for the folks at README, Inosh and his crew. Uh, so hopefully I will link that once that's available as well. So that's the first episode, the first episode from the beautiful island nation of Sri Lanka, the digital wave. Thank you very much for listening and thank you very much for spending the time uh, listening to me and I hope you gain something. Uh, love to hear your feedback. Hope you have a, a wonderful day and hope you have a great weekend because it's, it is Friday, so the weekend's coming up. Enjoy, ladies and gentlemen. Stay safe. Wash your hands. If you are in lockdown anywhere in the globe, please look after yourself uh, in these difficult times. And once again, thank you very much for joining in program number one, The Digital Wave. Ciao.